Hey everybody, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today we're going to be talking about the attention economy. We're going to be talking about Tucker Carlson, monetized distraction, and the debt ceiling. I've been taking yoga classes again. I've, I used to do yoga a lot. And in a most recent yoga class, the instructor started talking about the attention economy. So the whole class was based on this concept of distraction and how easy it is to not only lose focus, but that the world is designed for us to completely disengage, right? Our eyeballs are very expensive commodities. Companies will pay a lot of money in order to have our pupils etched on the products that they sell. The way that they capture our very precious gaze is usually through telling some sort of story based on what markets tell them that we will pay attention to. And so I've been fascinated by three things recently, Tucker Carlson, the debt ceiling, and profit-led inflation. But first, stories. I've been kind of hitting on this in the past couple videos. Tom Waits once said, the world is a hellish place and bad writing is a the quality of our suffering. Achievements integrates the human experience when it should inspire and elevate. And that's true for so much of what we consume. Our little human brains trend towards negativity and focus on what we can lose, loss aversion bias, because the amygdala starts running, you know, pulling the fire alarm, and the serratum is like, what's going on? And then finally the insula fires up, and soon enough your whole brain is freaking the heck out. Losses and perceived losses are really sticky, so we tend to seek them out. And the problem comes when media is designed to outrage us, and we can see this in the composition of pieces, so words and narrative. But with regards to words, there's a definite media literacy crisis in the United States. There's no space for context, no space for nuance, and absolutely no space for disagreement. Tressie McMillan Cotton wrote, I ask people sometimes if they think bad and horrible for a silly example connote the same emotional state. They say yes. If you think bad equals horrible, I can see how discomfort equals injury in your mind. We know language structures our world. If you only have two categories of words, you may only be able to have two categories of experiences. We are limited by language forever and always. We can never really truly communicate what we feel because there probably are not enough words in the human dictionary to do so, something I wrote about a few months ago. But part of the reason that we leave no space for context, nuance, or disagreement is because all the words end up meaning kind of the same thing, connotating the same experience. The dilution of horrible into bad means that everything bad is now the most horrible thing that has ever happened, actually. And if you dare say otherwise, well, you got another thing coming, buddy. Then that gets into narratives. So the limited the limitations of words we choose up end up shaping the narratives that we tell ourselves. As Jeanette Winterson says, we mostly understand ourselves through an endless series of stories told to ourselves by ourselves and others. The so-called facts of our individual worlds are highly colored and arbitrary, facts that fit whatever reality we have chosen to believe in. And this is okay. Uh, we understand ourselves through stories. Raymond Marr and Keith Oatley's The Function of Fiction is the Abstraction and Simulation of Social Experience is an incredible paper that's quite hard to say that dives into the idea that fiction creates a stimulative experience for readers. And we can learn better from that because it's more fun and it helps make sense of the rather floofy world around us. What's cool about this is we can simulate all these different experiences by living them through others. Experience the same sort of emotions, process the complexities of the world, maybe even develop some skills around how to handle different problems. So fiction is good for processing, but things get really dicey when fiction attempts to become reality. When we get into that whole simulacra and simulation, where it's like, oh man, what even is anything anymore? I don't know. And that's sort of where we're at right now, I think. 
So how we shape our stories. All of this ties into Simone de Beauvoir's The Ethics of Ambiguity. I promise I have a point, and I promise this part's interesting, where she writes about these five archetypes of human existence, an order of least free to most free. The subman is the person who's apathetic, who sort of chooses to do nothing but follows a cookie-cutter path with zero resistance. They completely reject any sort of freedoms that they have in favor of following whatever anyone else tells them to do. The nothing matters guy. The serious man is the person most people fall into this category, who gets attached to an absolute set of values, whether that be political affiliation, a religion, etc. It becomes who you are as an attempt to erase all ambiguity. The nihilist is the third person, and they're free because they recognize ambiguity, but they get so lost in the sauce that they lose all sense of meaning. However, this is a type of failure, as it is up to us to justify the world and to exist with validation. The adventurer is the person who knows that meaning cannot be packaged and sold, and also knows that they can create their own values, and they're largely action-oriented, adapting not to the world, but to themselves. The passionate man is the last archetype, and she writes it so well. He is the one who makes the most of his freedom, who lives not for a purpose, but for life itself, finding joy in the very act of existing. And the reason that I'm going on this really long tangent about archetypes is because I think, number one, they're cool. And then uh, number two, it's important to this larger conversation about emotion and meaning and things that keep on happening. Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is a manufactured rage machine, no opinion, published a great piece on the Carlson character that Tucker plays. And Tucker is able to generate a lot of submen around whatever thing he is talking about because Tucker does theater <laughs> and tells people what to believe and people want that people crave that and tucker knows that tucker does theater he kind of admits it in this video here but what he tells listeners and hints at is that it's really an us versus them discourse a thread that is always worrying and that the us needs to get it together presumably by listening to tucker as noah highlighted there's market power in this type of media and markets are not a moral compass at all right luke o'neill writes on hope and tucker the night before my mom died she made us turn on tucker carlson while we ate dinner in her hospital room we ate tacos in silence as tucker was ranting about the border. Life is big and weird, and it makes sense that the serious man is the archetype we tend to fall into because having a guiding set of values and beliefs and prescriptions makes all of this a little bit less big and weird. It's when we get so attached to those values that the problems start to arise, where words like horrible get diluted into something that is merely bad, when the narrative dances more towards fiction than reality or some sort of weird fictionalized reality. Markets are able to be the final dictation on what happens, market fundamentalism across all aspects of our lives. And that's when things start to get weird. So markets are storytellers. That's what the success of Tucker gets into. Not only is he responding to market forces, what viewers want to see, but he's playing into the hype market at all, all times. The most valuable thing that we have is our eyeballs, and he knows how to get them. As Noah referenced from Business Insider, three former Fox employees told the New York Times that Tucker Carlson relied on minute-by-minute -minute ratings data. His stories about immigration or warnings of demographic change in the US, like the white nationalist great replacement theory, were a hit. He is going to double down on the white nationalism. The minute by minutes shows that the audience eats it up. It's all about eyeballs at any cost. Markets are not a moral compass. And that's sort of not at all, right? But like kind of a derivative of it. What's going on with the debt ceiling too and profit-led inflation, it's all market storytelling. So the debt ceiling, the market is telling a story based on the reality that we might just do a cutesy little default. Credit default swaps are widening, meaning that investors are like, listen, a lot of people want to protect against the potential reality of a US debt implosion. The debt ceiling is meant to be this tool of austerity to protect us from spending too much, but instead it's become a way to craft some sort of story along party lines and dance so close to the edge that markets begin to define what lines are walkable. All meaning gets lost because the story becomes so ill-defined. You know, what is all this hubbub about. Perhaps it's to manage our debt load, maybe, but perhaps it's not. 
It's certainly political theater. It's certainly for eyeballs, and it's certainly distracting. Profit-led inflation is the next thing. The consumer goods companies are telling their own stories via markets, too. They're shaping the narrative by hiking prices to maintain margins, despite not selling any more product. Volume is flat. And this whole conversation is funky because you'll have people that will some for some reason, argue, well, that firms, you know, they need to raise prices because it's been expensive for them. Sure, okay, but like also they're causing inflation. Even McDonald's is telling this big story on french fries. McDonald's says the recession could be coming, a mild one, not supersized, and that's partially based on people not tacking on fries to their meal. This is actually known as the fry attachment rate, and it's apparently a very important economic indicator. And finally, no one can agree on what the story of inflation should be, but I do think that there's something pressury to Nestle, Kimberly Clark, Pepsi, Coke, and McDonald's, and more, all raising prices by more than 10% this past quarter. Just, just fine. Final thoughts. I think what Simone de Beauvoir is getting to with those archetypes is that you have to be able to define a set of values that define you while embracing the ambiguity that does exist in the world, but also realizing that you cannot truly be free until everybody is free. And that's what the passionate man is all about, that final archetype. It's being part of the world, affirming life, and taking on the weight of the world as best you can. Individuality is connected to others being able to be their own individuals too, which is kind of a weird thread of American individualism where we look around, everybody's like, I'm out here on my own and I'm gonna do whatever I can, the best I can, when really it's like other people need you just as much as you need them. It's similar to this from the denial of death by Ernest Becker. The debt to life has to be paid somehow. One has to be here in the best and only way that he can. There's a poem by Devin Kelly that I really like, Sunday at the Laundromat, that is emblematic of what I'm trying to say here. I love a perfect hug after a too long time apart. I love plants that raise their leaves just moments after being watered. I love how if you turn anything towards light, you might save its life. There's something perfect about the warmth of dry clothes. I want to pile them in a pile and jump together in them. I remember rain by what it leaves behind, water on the sidewalks, muddy puddles by the trees. The world reminds us of everything we might forget. It says everything clean must be dirtied again. It says you can't be perfect, don't try. It says something about the light not being able to choose its object. And I feel like these videos always have to have some big sweeping conclusion, but I'm going to leave this one ambiguous, uh, partially because I don't want to come off as prescriptive. I don't even really know what I prescribe. But the world is designed to take our attention to whatever the market deems best, right? And the attention economy is monetized distraction. So that line, if you turn anything towards light, you might save its life. Coupled with it says something about the light not being able to choose its object is a reminder of the strength of our individual power and how we must be careful of where we let that power end up. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me. This is a podcast as well. Uh, newsletter, kyla.substack.com. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere, I think. Um, but yeah, hope y'all are doing okay out there. Questions, comments below. If you want to go ahead and hit subscribe, that super helps. Share with a friend. But yeah, I'll talk to you soon.